Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Ephroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. And honor such people, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The word of the Lord. Well, I'm sure that many, if not all of you, have heard of J.R.R. Tolkien, the famous author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. In 1956, he wrote a letter in which he said this. He said, I am a Christian and indeed a Roman Catholic, so I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains some samples or glimpses of final victory. The story of this world, Tolkien says, is what he calls a long defeat. Now, some of you may instinctively resonate with that, you know exactly what he's talking about, but just to be clear, what is Tolkien saying here? In one sense, the story of this world is the story of human progress. That science and medicine and technology and political and educational systems, that all this stuff is, is slowly improving. Yet, no matter how much progress we make, no matter how hard we try in this world, there's another sense in which things keep getting worse. Like all of our hopes and dreams, no matter how hard we try, they're constantly being crushed. So let me give you a few examples. First, maybe a few personal examples. For instance, maybe you have a loved one who's really sick for years. And then you go through all the treatments, but then years later they recover. Wonderful, thank God. But then a few months later they get terminal cancer and they're gone within just a few days. The long defeat. Or maybe you're single, which is a wonderful thing to be, but you really, really want to be married. But no matter how many people you go out with, no matter how many dates you go on, nothing ever seems to work out. Or maybe you are married, but after decades of sacrifice and hard work, your marriage ends in divorce. Or maybe you just graduated from college, but not only can you not find a job in your field, you're being buried in student debt, the long defeat. 
Or let me give you one more example, this time at a social level. A few years ago, I went to a pre-screening of a movie called Emmanuel. Uh, it was about the white supremacist shootings at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston in, back in 2015. Do you remember that? A white supremacist walked into this church, shot nine African-Americans, including the pastor. The, after the movie, there was a panel discussion of uh, African-American leaders here in St. Louis. And the first question was, so what did you think about this movie? And one of the panelists said, we're still here. Now, when she said that, I thought she was saying, no matter how many people try to destroy us, we will always survive. We're still here. But that's not what she was saying. As she continued to speak, I realized what she was really saying was, no matter how much progress we thought we'd made in this country, no matter how many civil rights we've gained, we're still being murdered. We're still here in this same stuck place. No matter how much progress we make, the story of this world and our lives in this world oftentimes feels like a long defeat, like the forces of evil, darkness, and death, and oftentimes just the mundane forces of frustration and disappointment and annoyances, like all of that is slowly burying us one mocking shovelful at a time. Here's the question. How can we fight the long defeat without being buried by it? Is there some way for us to fight the long defeat and, and have hope and even have some measure of joy in this world? We're continuing a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. In this passage, Paul addresses that question head on by showing us three things. This morning, Paul shows us an ecosystem of service. He shows us a surrender of agenda. But lastly, there's the defeat of the long defeat. An ecosystem of service, a surrender of agenda, and the defeat of the long defeat. These all go together. Let's take a look. First, we see an ecosystem of service. In this passage, Paul is continuing a theme that he began all the way back at the beginning of chapter 2. Back there, he said this. You'll probably remember. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul is telling them and us that we should humbly put others' needs before our own. And then in the next passage, right after this, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, Paul gives us a picture of Jesus as the ultimate example of somebody who lived like this, who humbly put others' needs before their own. But then in this passage, it seems like Paul's moved on to kind of a boring section of the letter. He's talking about, hey, I want to send Timothy to you, and I already sent Epaphroditus to you. It just sounds like status reports. There's no theological teaching here. There are no famous verses here. And yet, friends, this passage is anything but boring. In fact, I think it's almost as if Paul realized that by giving us a picture of Jesus as the ultimate example of sacrificial service, that that might just be a little intimidating for us. Like, oh, here's the God of the universe humbly putting everyone's needs in front of his own. Now you just go and live like this too. No pressure. <laughs> and so in this passage, Paul is actually giving us pictures of normal everyday people living like this. So for example, look at Timothy. Paul says, 
I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Do you notice how Paul is using the same language from the beginning about our default tendency to seek our own interests? In contrast, Timothy is one of those rare people who, notice how Paul puts it, is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy humbly puts others' needs before his own. Or look at Epaphroditus. And, and to do that, remember the backstory in this letter. Paul is in Roman jail, he's facing execution. And uh, the Philippians sent Paul some money because Roman jails wouldn't feed you. If you wanted to eat, you had to pay for it yourself. So Epaphroditus was the guy that they sent. He's one of the Philippians. He travels hundreds of miles to get this money to Paul, but in the process, he gets really sick and almost dies. And the Philippians heard about this. They were worried. So Paul says this, indeed, he was ill, near to death. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Do you see? Everyone in this passage is a living picture of what it looks like to humbly put others' needs before your own. This is the gospel response to the long defeat. You may rot in jail, but you serve others. You may die a, a slow, painful death, but you serve others. In other words, this, the long defeat may claim your life, but not before you've had a chance to add just a little bit more life to someone or something else that might survive the long defeat. You know, Tolkien himself gave lots of pictures of this in his own books. For instance, there's a place in Lord of the Rings where the city of Gondor is under attack from the evil Lord Sauron. They have like zero chance of surviving the onslaught. And for years, they've been waiting for the true king of Gondor to return and restore the city to its original glory, but he hasn't shown up yet. And so there's another guy named Denethor. And Denethor is not a king. Denethor is a steward. A steward is someone who takes care of something else, that, something that belongs to someone else. And so here they are, um, and they're being attacked, but Denethor is so afraid that he's just given up hope. But along comes Gandalf the wizard, and Gandalf is just trying to help, but Denethor's mind has been so warped and twisted by fear that he's become paranoid and angry. He thinks Gandalf is trying to grab all the power and assume rule over the realm of Gondor. But amazingly, Gandalf says this. He says, um, if we could go back one slide. He says, the rule of no realm is mine, but all worthy things that are in peril, those are my care. And as for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish. If anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward, did you not know? Instead of being ruled by fear or anger or a desire for power, Gandalf is willing to risk his life for the sake of something else that might survive the long defeat. Friends, that is exactly what's happening in this passage. And notice it's not just one person doing this. It's Timothy serving um, the Philippians. It's the Philippians and Epaphroditus serving Paul. Everybody here is serving everybody else. It's what we could call a gospel ecosystem 
of humble service. In fact, let me try and um, make this as simple and memorable for you as I can. What's, what's an ecosystem? An ecosystem is a community or a group of organisms that interact with and support one another. Now this particular ecosystem is what we might call an ecosystem of humble service. What does that mean? You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about something called, that I called the gospel three-step? The gospel three-step is a dance that orders our lives in this world according to the gospel. Um, it comes from a passage a little bit earlier in chapter 2 when Paul was giving us Jesus as an example. Remember, and this is a paraphrase, he says, though Jesus was God, he did not grasp his status as God, but became a servant of others. The gospel three-step has three steps in it, though not but, though not but, though not but. What that means for Jesus is though he was God, he did not grasp his status of God as God, but he became a servant. For us, it means though we have every right to hang on to our rights, we do not put our own needs ahead of others, but we put others' needs ahead of our own. It's the gospel three-step. In fact, let me try to make this even simpler for us. Um, a gospel ecosystem of humble service means that we order our lives in this world according to two simple words. You want to know what they are? You first. Whenever your interests or your welfare comes into contact with somebody else's interests or welfare, a gospel ecosystem of humble service means that your default tendency is that you would say, you first. Oh, no, no, please, I insist, you first. And that doesn't mean that just whatever anybody wants, we just like let them have their way. Of course not. If you're a parent, you know you don't do that with your kids. It means humbly and wisely discerning what really is best here. What does this other person really need? This requires wisdom. What does this situation, what is really the other person's welfare? It's not just like, well, if you want to have the TV remote, well, you can have it. I'm just going to let you have whatever you want. No. It requires wisdom and discernment, but it means putting others' needs first. It means living our lives according to two words, you first. Let me ask you a question. Would you like to live in a world where everyone does this? So would I. But there's a problem, and that leads to the next thing that Paul shows us here. He's just shown us uh, an ecosystem of service, but next Paul shows us a surrender of agenda. Because here's the real challenge. The only way that we can have a world where everyone says, you first, is if someone is willing to go first. In order to have a world where, ev where everyone says, you first, someone has to be willing to go first. Someone has to be willing to say, okay, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna give up my interests. I'm gonna give up my welfare. I'm gonna give up my needs. Somebody has to be willing to be the first one to jump in, as it were. But if they jump in, it makes it easier for everybody else to jump in. For instance, Jenny and I, many years ago, were in Africa, and when we were there, we had a chance to go to the Masai Mara National Preserve. It was amazing. We saw lions and cheetahs and zebras and elephants and giraffes. But one of the most amazing things we saw was one day we were standing um, close to a river that had a deep ravine on either side. And all of a sudden, the ground started shaking and vibrating and bombolating. It was a massive herd of wildebeest that marched right up to the river, but then when they got to the edge of the ravine, they stopped because it was so steep. 
And you could see one or maybe two lone wildebeests trying to find their way down the cliff of the ravine, trying to find a place where they could jump in and swim across. But while they were doing that, the rest of the wildebeests just stood there waiting for one of the other ones to be the first one to jump in. Finally, one of them found a way and jumped in. And when that happened, the whole herd just started pouring into the river. It was amazing. It went on for close to an hour. There was so many of them just pouring across. And they weren't even worried about, you know, whether or not to go in the place the first one jumped off. They were just coming down everywhere. As soon as the first one jumped in, they all jumped in. But here's the thing I didn't tell you. The river was infested with crocodiles. And every once in a while, a crocodile would grab one of the wildebeests and pull it under. Which means that whoever was the first one to jump in might as well have painted a target on their back. Yoo-hoo, Mr. Crocodile! Here I am! Come and get me! In other words, whoever is first to jump in has to be willing to surrender their own agenda. You may not make it to the other side. You may not even make it a few feet. But for the sake of others, you surrender your agenda and you become willing to be the first one to jump in. Now listen, this does not mean that we live our lives and completely give up any hope or dream that we have. It does not mean that we just become a bunch of Eeyores. We're living lives where we're constantly pessimistic and we always just assume that the worst is always going to happen. No. It does mean that we hold on to our hopes and dreams loosely because we have a bigger hope in something else. Let me show you what I mean. In this passage, Paul has hopes and dreams. Remember, he's in jail. He's facing execution. He doesn't know how things are going to turn out for him, but he has hopes and dreams. Look at what he says. I hope to send Timothy to you soon. And a few verses later, even more than that, he says, I trust that shortly I myself will come also. Paul hopes that he's going to live. He hopes he's going to get out of jail. He hopes that he's going to see his friends again. But what is his real hope in? What is Paul's ultimate trust in? Does Paul say, oh, I trust that um, Roman justice is going to allow so that I shortly will be able to come myself? Does he say, I trust in my status as a Roman citizen that I myself will come shortly also? No. Notice what he says. I trust in the Lord, that shortly I myself will come also. In other words, Paul is saying, Lord Jesus, whatever you want. Yes, I have my hopes and dreams over here. Yes, I have my agenda for how I think things ought to go in my life and in this world, but I surrender my agenda to you, Lord Jesus, whatever you want. Do you see what's happening here? This is not the absence of hope. This is the presence of a much bigger hope. Not hope in our plan, hope in God's plan. And listen, God's plan might be very different from our plan, but we can trust in God's plan because we can trust that God is good. It's kind of like that um, part in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the children first get into the land of Narnia and they meet some talking beavers who tell them, oh, you know the king of Narnia? He's an, uh, a lion named Aslan. And the children say, wait, the king of Narnia is a lion? Is he safe? And the beavers say, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
We can trust that God's plan is good because God is good. Now listen, we need to name the reality that, that living with this kind of hope, living with this kind of trust is really, really hard. Especially in our culture, which says that suffering is to be avoided at all costs. For instance, Kate Bowler is a writer and a history professor at Duke Divinity School. Um, I read an article from her a few years ago in which she, she begins by saying that a few years before that, she had received a call from her doctor telling her that she had stage four cancer. She was only 35 years old. She says that all kinds of thoughts went through her mind. She thought about her husband. She thought about their newborn baby. But one of the first thoughts that went through her mind was, this is so ironic. Why? Because she had just published a book called Blessed, which is a history of the American prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that God's vision for your life is that you would have maximum health, wealth, happiness, and prosperity right now. And that if you're not experiencing that, if you're suffering in any way, then it's because you didn't have enough faith. You did something wrong. You didn't claim that promise. You didn't believe that God's victory was already yours. And listen, this is not just religious people who do this. In the article, Kate Bowler says this, she says, Americans believe in a gospel of optimism. The idea that we're all supposed to be positive all the time has become an American obsession. The problem is it becomes a kind of poison. It expects that people who are suffering are somehow always supposed to find the silver lining or not supposed to speak realistically about their circumstances. The main problem is that it adds shame to suffering by just requiring everyone to be prescriptively joyful. Do you hear what she's saying? In our culture, we just assume that, of course, we already know exactly how our life is supposed to go, and it never, ever involves suffering. And as a result, we feel like we have to be, as Kate Moeller says, prescriptively joyful. That means joyful on command. That means fake joy. It's like a fake optimism. In this passage, when Paul surrenders his agenda to Jesus, not only is he opening up his life to the possibility of more suffering, he's also opening up space in his life for a real joy, a truer, deeper, more authentic joy. How? That leads to our last point. Paul has shown us an ecosystem of service. Next, he showed us a surrender of agenda. But the last thing we need to see here is the defeat of the long defeat. Because here's the real challenge. It's hard to live like this. It's, it's hard enough, just in the first place, to live like this. But here's the thing. Lots of you really are trying to live like this. The real challenge here is that we really like to think of ourselves as people who live like this. And we really, really like for other people to think of us as people who live like this. The great writer David Foster Wallace once put it like this. In an essay he wrote, he said, am I a good person? Deep down, do I even really want to be a good person? Or do I only want to seem like a good person so that people, including myself, will approve of me? And that's brutal honesty. But here's what he's saying. Oftentimes, we try to be humble and courageous and noble and generous and sacrificial because we want other people to see us as humble, courageous, noble, generous, and sacrificial, which means that we're not really serving others. 
We're not really serving God. Really, even in our best moments, oftentimes we're just serving ourselves. How does that change? The first step is to see that the reason the long defeat is in the world is because, first of all, the long defeat is in us. It's in my heart. It means that no matter how much progress I seem to make, no matter how hard I try in this world, that the more I um, strive to become a better person in my own power, the more I realize that I don't actually have the power to become the person I'm supposed to be. In order to defeat the long defeat in the world, something has to defeat the long defeat in me. If that were to happen, what would that look like? As I was studying the passage this week, one of the things that struck me was that, you know, here's Paul. And throughout this passage, he keeps lifting up Timothy and Epaphroditus as these like sterling examples of what it looks like to humbly put others' needs before your own. So if you look at Timothy, he says that there's no one who's genuinely concerned about anyone else's welfare. And if you look at Epaphroditus, it says that he almost risked his life for the sake of the gospel. He keeps lifting up Timothy and Epaphroditus as models of this kind of life. And yet the whole time, Paul's doing the same thing, except it's almost impossible to see it because he's not drawing any attention to it. Think about it. Paul's in jail. He loved Timothy. Timothy was an incredible comfort and encouraged to him. Paul says, I have no one like him. And yet Paul is willing to lose the presence of Timothy in order to send him to the Philippians who need him more. Or if you think about Epaphroditus, you know, Paul loves Epaphroditus just as much. In fact, if Epaphroditus had ended up dying, Paul says, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. And yet he's willing to lose the presence of Epaphroditus for the Philippians who need him more. Everybody in this passage is a model of this, especially Paul, but the amazing thing about Paul is he doesn't draw any attention to himself in doing it. Why? I honestly think that he doesn't draw attention to it because he's not even aware that he's not drawing attention to himself because he's not even thinking about himself in the first place. He's lost that shadow self that's constantly focused on itself. For instance, if you were to imagine a, a glass of water, but the water is muddy water. You put it in front of a light, and that glass casts a shadow because it's full of muddy water. But if you were to empty out the muddy water and fill it with pure, clear water and put it back in front of the light, there would be no shadow, or at least very little shadow. Why? Because there's nothing in the glass to block the light. Friends, one of our deepest, most desperate needs is to lose our shadow self so that the light of God could shine through the true self God created us to be. How does that happen? How do we go first and become willing to be people who say, you first? How do we pour our lives into other people so that something beyond us might survive or grow fair and flourish in this world, even though the long defeat might claim our life. And on top of that, how do we do all of this without focusing on ourselves or without focusing on what other people think about ourselves? How do we do all of that? The only way is to see that Jesus already did all of it, all of it for us. Think about it. Epaphroditus risked his life to serve others, but on the cross, Jesus gave his life to serve us all. You know, we, the only way we can have a world where everyone says, you first, 
is if someone is willing to go first. On the cross, Jesus went first. Jesus was like that lone wildebeest standing on the edge of a ravine, looking into a crocodile-infested river with all the other wildebeests standing behind him, their lives, our lives, hanging in the balance. But instead of saying, well, I hope that if I'm lucky, I'm going to make it across to the other side, Jesus said, no. The whole point of me jumping in first is to offer my life to the crocodiles of evil, darkness, and death so that everyone else can make it across to safety on the other side. On the cross, Jesus went first. Jesus was devoured by the long defeat so that we could cross over the long defeat to safety on the other side. And the more you see Jesus doing that for you, and I mean really see him doing that for you, really gazing at him, loving you like that on the cross, the more you see that, the more it lifts you up out of yourself, the more it dissolves the muddy water of your shadow self, and frees you to become the kind of person that can pour yourselves out for the sake of others who might survive the long defeat after you. It turns you into a steward. You know, here's the thing. Until Jesus, the true king, returns to make all things new, the long defeat is going to endure in this world. And yet, there is a joy that is available to us in the midst of the long defeat. It doesn't erase the wounds we've taken in this world or the suffering we experience it absorbs our wounds and our suffering and transforms us into somebody who's able to pour our lives into the well-being of others, even though we might not survive the long defeat. So friends, if you're here this morning and you're exploring faith or spirituality, may I um, gently um, and respectfully, I hope, encourage you to consider the possibility that you will only find a truly spiritual way of life or a true connection with God that the only way that will happen is if you are willing to face the shadow self that dwells inside of you and to face the reality that you can't rid yourself of that shadow self apart from Jesus' work for you on the cross. Would you consider that? And for all of us, Jesus fought the long defeat on the cross so that he could defeat the long defeat in you so that he could free you from the shadow self and, and turn you into somebody who's, who's able to go first and become just one more person in this world who's willing to say, you first. You can fight the long defeat because on the cross, Jesus already fought it for you. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you this day because you fought the long defeat on our behalf. And you are rescuing us day by day, week by week, year by long year from the long defeat. And one day you will come again, Lord Jesus, to make all things new and bring about the final victory. In this world, we only see hints and guesses, samples and glimmers of it. And yet, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to trust in your plan because we trust that you are good. Help us to fight the long defeat without being buried by it because we see that you were buried, you were devoured. Lord Jesus, that what we might be set free and carried across to safety on the other side. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.